0: This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. In supporting the work we do, two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, plus the opportunity to vote each week on what upcoming topics we'll cover, while full membership gets all that, plus members-only bonus episodes with extra clips and commentary. Sign up at patreon.com bestofleft or visit the contribute tab at BestOfLeft.com. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the ongoing, war in Yemen, including its origins, multitude of players, the U.S. support for the war that's helping drive the world's worst humanitarian crisis, and what we can do to stop it. Clips today come from Counterspin, The Inquiry, The Daily, Citations Needed, The Real News, Sojourner Truth Radio, and Newsbeat.
1: Counterspin has noted that for MSNBC, which Adweek and others deem the network of the resistance, the U.S. participation in the war on Yemen has been a non-issue. On July 2nd, a year had passed since the cable network's last segment mentioning the U.S. role in that war, which has killed in excess of 15,000 people and resulted in over a million cases of cholera. The U.S. is backing a Saudi-led bombing campaign with intelligence, refueling, political cover, military hardware, and ground troops. So we aren't happy, really, but still salute MSNBC's breaking of that silence with a powerful, if brief, piece on August 9th from Chris Hayes. Introducing some harrowing footage, Hayes told viewers, quote, If I were to stand here on this broadcast and tell you that a foreign power had bombed a school bus full of American children, there would be no bigger story. We would be in a state of panic, horror, and mourning, and certainly a media war. In fact, the thought experiment doesn't even work, because if that had happened, you wouldn't need me to tell you about it at 8.45. You'd know minutes after it happened. Well, today, a foreign power did bomb a school bus full of children, only it was Yemeni children, and the Saudi-led coalition that did that bombing is backed by us, the United States, close quote. Rather than lament the horrific events as something happening far, far away, Hayes concluded with the relevant information, quote, Our government... Our public dollars are paying to kill Yemeni children, and it's our government and our representatives that can stop it. Close quote. We hope this is just one instance of MSNBC's redefining what is meant by news viewers can use.
2: Is it fair to say that no conflict breaks out in the Middle East without Iran and Saudi Arabia getting involved?
3: Well, over the past 15 years, that has pretty much been the case.
2: Christian coates Ulrichsen, our second expert witness, analyses the Gulf region from his US vantage point, the Baker Institute for Public Policy at Rice University.
3: Saudi Arabia and Iran have, to some extent, been engaged in this kind of regional struggle since the 1970s. The Saudis trying to portray themselves as the leaders of Sunni Islam, Iran doing the same for Shia Islam.
2: Alarmed by the Houthis' takeover of Yemen's capital, Saudi Arabia, leading a coalition of nine mainly Sunni Arab countries, took action. This is the Saudis' ambassador to the US at the time.
4: The operations uh, have begun in Yemen. The objective is limited to defending and protecting the legitimate government of Yemen and preventing its collapse to the Houthis. Having Yemen fail cannot be an option for us.
3: The Saudis, I think, overreacted to reports that Iran may have been aiding the Houthi rebels. We do
4: not believe that the Houthis would have been able to do what they did had it not been for the support
3: that they received from the Iranians.
2: So was Iran meddling? Iran says absolutely not. Christian says maybe a little.
3: Yes, there may have been small-scale support in terms of weapons that found their way into Yemen.
2: That was then... Now there is some evidence that Iran has been upping its involvement in response to Saudi Arabia's action, according to Christian Coates or Rickson. But as well as the regional politics, there were personal politics at play.
3: There was an element of gung-ho militarism on the part of the new Saudi defence minister, Deputy Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman, the son of the king who was at the time just 29 years old. This was his first major initiative since becoming defense minister. I think he was looking to make a big statement.
2: A quick, decisive victory would establish the young prince as a bold national leader and Saudi Arabia as regional kingpin.
3: If you had asked the Saudi leadership in March 2015 whether in 2 years they would still be at war in Yemen without any apparent victory or resolution in sight, they would probably have been very surprised.
2: Far from being an easy win that would take two months, Saudi Arabia's involvement in the conflict in Yemen has brought the war closer to its own territory.
3: Saudi cities in the south are under almost constant fire from missiles and mortars fired from Yemeni rebels.
2: And the Saudi-led air campaign has been devastating. In October 2016, an airstrike hit a crowded funeral, killing 140 people and injuring 500. The UN humanitarian coordinator for Yemen condemned the horrific attack. Both sides have been accused of war crimes.
3: So it's a pretty convoluted and sometimes chaotic picture, but one that hasn't delivered or doesn't even look like delivering any form of decisive outcome anytime soon.
2: Do you think they could be motivated to pull out of this war?
3: The Saudis need to find a way to be able to declare victory and to leave in a way that they do not lose face, particularly with Iran. But I don't think they've managed to figure that out at the moment. Part 3 The Rest
5: I established good personal rapport with President Saleh, who would often call me and ask me things or call me to complain about certain American policies. He'd just call you up? Yes, yes, you would just call me up on my cell phone (laughs) and chat.
2: Our next expert witness, Nabil Khoury, is the sort of person who can get on with anyone. He was a senior diplomat at the U.S. Embassy in Yemen when he was on such easy terms with the then-president Saleh. Saleh is the authoritarian who was ousted by popular protests, as we explained in part one. He was refreshingly open. I've never heard somebody from a democratic country speak in such glowing terms about a dictator before.
5: (laughs) Well, it's sort of the same way you would speak about the godfather
2: Nabil Khoury now works for a U.S. think tank, the Atlantic Council's Rafik Hariri Center for the Middle East, closely following what's happening in the region. We've talked about Saudi Arabia, I told him. We've talked about Iran. Are there any other countries that could stop this war? The United States and uh, Great Britain,
5: they're two of the most involved countries in the Gulf region.
2: The relationship between the US and the UK and Saudi Arabia is particularly strong, as British Prime Minister Theresa May underlined on a trip to Saudi Arabia this week.
6: We've had long links with Saudi Arabia. These are about our security, yes, about prosperity and about trade too.
2: So what does this relationship look like in practice?
5: US UK have provided security for the regime in Saudi Arabia, for the monarchy, since World War II. Until now... The major arms that Saudi Arabia buys come from the US and the UK.
2: So, weapons that Saudi Arabia is using in this war in Yemen have been supplied by the US and the UK?
5: Oh, yes, absolutely. Its air force comes primarily from the U.S. F-15s and F-16s, but it has also purchased a large number of typhoons. The U.K. is a main participant in the manufacture and sale of the typhoon. It also supplies training to uh, Saudi forces. When this war started, some of the, what is euphemistically referred to as logistical support, was lent to Saudi Arabia by the US and UK.
2: What is that in reality? That
5: involves the refueling of Saudi bombers in the air. And it also means reinforcing the naval blockade around Yemen.
2: So Um, the US and the UK are not just armed manufacturers which sell to various countries, including Saudi Arabia. They've been giving Saudi Arabia practical support in this war in Yemen.
5: That's right. I mean, they really have been the main enablers, certainly for the first year of this war.
2: But in 2016, as the war entered its second year and the civilian casualties were mounting, it looked like the US was getting cold feet under President Obama. Here's his press secretary.
7: In light of the high rate of civilian casualties, there was the president ordered a review of the kind of assistance that the United States provides to the Saudis as they undertake this effort.
5: But they've pulled back only symbolically by withdrawing experts from the command and control center. The rest of it is still being done. The support is still very much there for Saudi Arabia.
2: How likely is it that the U.S. and the U.K. will withdraw their support.
5: Ah, well, that's another story, isn't it? Leaders continue to think that it is in their national interest to support Saudi Arabia, right or wrong.
8: I asked you at the beginning of our conversation how it could be that an American-made missile took out that school bus and killed all those children in Yemen. And it seems like the answer is that we have a long-standing strategic alliance with Saudi Arabia. And part of that alliance means we sell them missiles that they decided to drop on Yemenis in a war that we support. So it makes sense that there's real anger towards the U.S., And that people would write on that wall, America kills Yemeni children.
7: That's right. There really are American bombs falling. And the longer they continue to fall and the longer people continue to go through the rubble and find parts with American serial numbers on them, the worse that anger will be. Hmm. But as for the Houthis, you have to remember they are not the good guys in this war. They also are guilty of torture, of disappearances, of extralegal executions. Hmm. They, at this point, are operating on almost purely military basis. It's not clear what their vision is for the future, apart from self-preservation.
8: And what is the view of this war at this point by? the US
7: news Donald J Trump arriving in Saudi Arabia for his first foreign trip as president this, this
2: is, a- is an american first never before has a
1: president set foot on saudi soil for his first trip abroad but that-
7: well, first of all after trump came into office he seemed to double down on American support for this war.
1: Yesterday, President Trump signed a
9: $110 billion arms deal, deal with, with Saudi, Saudi Arabia. Arabia. essentially
7: a green light uh, to continue to
10: have essentially a proxy war. The United States hoping the Saudis and others essentially fighting Iran inside Yemen. Uh, so the
7: and he makes very clear that he views Mohammed bin Salman as his favorite son in the region.
11: Thank you very much, everybody. It's a great honor to have the crown prince with us. Uh, Saudi Arabia's been a uh, A very great friend and a big purchaser of equipment and lots of other things.
7: His view of the Middle East is very much shaped by the Saudis. And he seems to give the Saudis almost carte blanche to do whatever they want.
11: I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal.
7: There was no indication that Trump wanted to be critical of the Saudi war in Yemen until about two months ago.
1: The State Department is looking into accusations that Saudi Arabia was involved in the alleged murder of a prominent Saudi journalist. Jamal Khakshoggi disappeared last week in Turkey.
7: As the Turks let out bits and pieces of information about the murder mm-hmm. in, in and drabs.
1: Turkey's president says his country is studying
12: CCTV footage taken at the consulate and airport. Turkey says it has given audio recordings of the journalist's killing to the United States and other Western countries.
7: People began to suspect that Mohammed bin Salman, our great friend in the region, himself ordered this brutal killing.
3: Suspicion has fallen on Saudi Arabia's crown prince,
13: Mohammed bin Salman. We know that the international community has no trust in the Saudis coming clean with what happened. Lawmakers from both sides of the aisle claim
3: the orders must have come from the top.
7: And that began to shine a spotlight for the first time on who is this guy? Is he really the great reformer we've been seeing him as?
3: It is clearly that
8: the war in Yemen now is uh, gaining renewed attention and the question marks... Are being erased over US Saudi partnership.
7: And of course, that led to questions of what is he doing in Yemen?
11: This policy of Saudi Arabia of inflicting massive civilian casualty
14: and suffering. For what
7: the voices that had been critical of the Saudi war and were overlooked for a long time start to get heard.
0: People are dying every minute in Yemen and our silence and our inaction
14: means that we are complicit.
7: People in Congress are speaking up, and in the cabinet, Secretary Pompeo and Secretary Mattis also call for a ceasefire.
13: The longer-term solution, and by longer-term, I mean 30 days from now, we want to see everybody around a peace table based on a ceasefire that will permit the special envoy uh, to get them together in Sweden and end this war. That is.
7: And so there's a kind of accumulation of criticism, and of public calls for something to finally change in this war.
8: Robert, even as members of the Trump administration begin grappling with whether or not we should still be involved in this war, I'm remembering that this whole operation started as an effort by both the Saudis and the U.S. to try to contain the influence of our mutual enemy, Iran. And I wonder to what extent the Trump administration and the Saudis still see it that way as really about Iran? Or has it become about something totally different at this point?
7: I think for the Saudis and their allies, it remains very much a war against Iran. That has always been their concern. The United States, of course, shares that concern. But I think the question is, is this war in Yemen an effective way to push back against Iran? And is it? You know, I think the Obama administration had doubts about that from the very beginning. The Trump administration was more inclined to trust the Saudis on that question. And now I think you're seeing a return of doubts just because time kept passing. The the civilian casualties kept piling up. And yet the Houthis are not weaker. If anything, they're stronger. And so that just naturally, you know, pushes people to ask the question, what are we doing here? Is this the right way? To accomplish our shared goal, which is to push back against Iran. And I think there's a strong feeling among some in the administration and certainly many outside of it. This is not the way to do it. Hmm. When you're in Yemen outside of the areas of Houthi control, it's often kind of a lawless zone with multiple different factions fighting each other. But inside the Houthi areas, there is this generally a feeling of unity that they're all together in this struggle. On September 21st, I was in Sana'a, the capital, and there was this huge, very triumphal parade. In which lots and lots of major Houthi figures participated, and there was music, there was marching, there was everybody you know, grabbing their AK 47 and thrusting it into the air and chanting. The Houthis feel empowered by this war, which is exactly the opposite of what the Saudi coalition had been hoping for. And not only that, on this same day, there were similar processions elsewhere going on around the Arab world because it was a which is a big Shiite holiday. And what you heard from clerics and even from some battlefield commander types in Iraq and in Lebanon was tremendous sympathy with the Houthi cause, a feeling that... These guys were the victims of a terrible Saudi war. They were the oppressed. And we sympathize with them. You know, our hearts are with them. We're willing to go and fight mm. on their side. Which sounds like the
8: definition
7: of a mission that has backfired for the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. I think that's true. I think far from crushing the Houthis, as the Saudi coalition must have hoped, this has in some way empowered them, made them feel that their cause is just and that they have friends and allies all over the place.
8: It's really intriguing to me, Robert, that after all these years of death in Yemen, that what feels like a pivot point here is the murder of a single man, not even in Yemen, but in Turkey, by Saudi Arabia, that that is starting to feel like a turning point. What do you make of that?
7: I think it highlights the way that it's not institutions that matter in these countries, but people. So much depends on the person who runs this country and what that vision is, how they operate. And if suddenly something happens that casts a new light on who that person is, it really can make an enormous difference in terms of how we see that person and how we see everything they're doing. Hmm. I think a lot of people feel that there's something incredibly strange about this scenario where you have a drama playing out day by day, having to do with the death of a single person, a journalist, and yet so much turns, so many lives turn on that one murder. I think though for most people in the region, they're willing to take anything as long as there's a way to look more closely at what's happening and ask, is it worth it?
8: So what's changed is Nothing in the geopolitics of all this. What's changed is that the murder of Jamal Khashoggi has changed global perceptions and, most importantly, American perceptions of Saudi Arabia's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman.
7: I think that's right. You know, two people really will decide all of this. One of them is Trump and one of them is Mohammed bin Salman. I think certainly Trump has the power to really push Mohammed bin Salman on this, but it's very hard to know how much pressure. He's going to exert. And I think what he wants, it's pretty clear, is to avoid all of this. He likes Mohammed bin Salman. He would like to keep supporting him. If he could go back to business as usual, he would. And so the question really is, are there going to be circumstances where he's going to have to push MBS to take action?
8: So really, the fate of this war and the people of Yemen are up to two men, Donald Trump and Mohammed bin Salman. But really, it's up to President Trump.
7: I think that's true.
0: I don't need to tell you that 2018 has been a difficult year for human rights, but have you ever wondered how human rights abuses are documented around the world? With the sheer volume of global crises we're seeing, from civilian casualties in Syria, to ethnic cleansing in Myanmar, to the caging of children on U.S. borders, it's critical that we expose the truth in order to defend the rights of all and bring those responsible to justice. Human Rights Watch does just that. They are an independent, nonprofit organization known for their accurate fact-finding, impartial reporting, and targeted advocacy, often in partnership with local activists and human rights groups. They accept no money from any government, but rely on the support of informed, dedicated people just like you. So if human rights are important to you, and I know they are, visit hrw.org slash best to make a donation and support this vital work around the world. When you do not not only is your gift tax deductible it will be matched dollar for dollar until 2019 that means your donation will go twice as far to advance justice and defend the basic dignity of people who need it most again that's hrw.org/best and thanks
10: back in fall of 2016 when the houthi rebels the rebels that the Saudis are nominally bombing they they talked about – so the, the Houthi rebels allegedly, although this is never really proven, fired a missile at
15: a U.S. ship and did not hit it, and then the U.S. fired back at, quote-unquote, Houthi-controlled areas. Right. Remember that this is all taking place on the Arab Peninsula. The United States has warships everywhere in that region. Obviously, the uh, Fifth Fleet is based in Bahrain, but there are – naval ships basically surrounding Yemen. In uh, April 17th of 2015, the Washington Post reported that the U.S. Navy has seven combat ships around Yemen and then basically absolved the U.S. of supporting the Saudi-led blockade, just kind of issuing a Defense Department press release saying, oh, yes, of course, there are seven combat ships right there, right off the coast. But that's not actually in support of the blockade, which, of course, it was.
10: So when this happened last fall, there was a number of of outlets that reported on this from ABC, uh, Martha Raddatz, to CNN's Barbara Starr, to David Martin, who's the Defense Department spokesperson for, I'm sorry, the Defense Department reporter for uh, For CBS. CBS, (laughs) And none of them, not a single one of them mentioned the context of either Saudi bombing. They did not mention the word Saudi or United States bombing. They just mentioned the Iran-backed Houthi rebels. Quote-unquote Iran-backed Houthi rebels. Right, and referred vaguely to a civil war. This gives the impression that when the U.S. was fired upon, that somehow Iran backed, or in, in many cases, in many of these reports, effectively saying Iran bombed us, right? without mentioning that the U.S. has been bombing the, these Houthi rebels for almost you know a year and a half. So, again, that context, first blood is an important part of any war narrative, right, who sort of started it. And when you completely omit that the U.S. has been bombing these people for, you know, a year and a half, two years, two and a half years, mercilessly killing tens of thousands of, of civilians
15: and, and giving over a million people cholera. And has supported the government's directly killing and oppressing them for yeah. far longer than that. Right. That is it, a huge piece of context
10: because, it, again, it just looks like um, it's sort of the, the geopolitical equivalent of officer-involved shooting. It's like there's no sort of sense of proportionality or sense of who's doing what to whom. And
15: therefore, any U.S. action is always viewed as a response or a retaliation to the thing that happened to us first, rather than in a kind of continuum of ongoing things. And,
10: and the worst example of this, this was right before the election, was Rachel Maddow, who took the time not to sort of contextualize the war, talk about U.S.'s role. Um, and again, MSNBC just never, never talks about the war in Yemen ever mm-hmm. our, our nominal leftist liberal uh, just who couldn't give a shit. They've ta- since Trump took office, they talk about it more.
15: Pretty much only when Chris Murphy is on, and pretty much <laughs> only when Chris Murphy is on. Bless the Connecticut senator's heart for yeah. this one thing.
10: Yeah, again, if only he cared about Palestinians. <laughs> um, there was two year period where MSNBC I think brought it up once in that two year period, and so here here's an opportunity to talk about it. Right, we just had a Houthi rebels fire on an American ship allegedly. And this was a great opportunity to contextualize the war, to talk about the tens of thousands that have died, to talk about, at this point, the cholera outbreak that it sort of just started. Great opportunity to highlight this atrocity. Keep in mind that most of our audience has never even heard of this, right? But instead of doing that, instead of talking about why the fuck the ship was there in the first place right. and why the fuck it was fired upon in the first place, she instead turns it into a process critique of Trump's incompetency. So let's let's listen to this. And again, understand that in the entire, this entire segment, she doesn't mention the word Saudi, She doesn't mention the word Um, American in in the context of the war, just in the context of us being bombed by these evil iran back rebels. So listen to this.
1: You might remember Republican candidate Donald Trump said in an offhanded remark during the campaign
0: that if Iranian ships got too close to American ships and if Iranian sailors made rude gestures toward our American sailors under him, under President Trump, we'd blow those Iranian ships out of the water. Well, Iranian ships and U.S. ships are now in the same waters, off the coast of Yemen, in the middle of a war, with tomahawk missiles and cruise missiles already flying. Steady on.
10: You have a smug process critique. Iran is
15: not firing missiles from ships.
10: Yeah. Well, she gives the impression that they are. That there's um, this,
15: like, naval battle that's being waged between the U.S. and Iran off the coast of Yemen.
10: But this, this sums up, like, how people
15: like cover it's the Yemen. British and the French and the yeah. American Revolution.
10: The, the, again, the critique is not, let's critique the broader war machine of why we're there. That's totally bipartisan. It's Trump is going to handle our imperial wars badly. Again, this is the Overton window. It's not do we have these wars or not. It's do we. Ha- it's how do we manage these wars, and let's not have someone who's a hothead. Which you know, fair enough. I guess that's a a reasonable process critique
15: if you just but, allow that the U.S. is perpetually right, going to be. That's just taken. People. That's
10: just taken for granted. And here, Barbara Starr in her report does what Barbara Starr does, which is effectively just make a press release for the Defense Department free of charge, um, and she deliberately conflates um, Al Qaeda with the Houthi rebels in a way that is, I think, pretty deliberate. So let's listen to that
4: this time officials think the yemeni missiles were fairly old but had been outfitted with highly lethal warheads the kind al-qaeda and iran know how to make
15: okay so al-qaeda and iran as if they're the same
10: thing yeah so she talks about iran making these missiles uh, and houthi rebels over images of al-qaeda and isis right um again there's there's this idea that you just want to conflate all these, you know, Muslims under the one group and they're all evil. Sure.
15: Except for Saudi Arabia, which is not evil. Right. Apparently. Well,
10: they're bombing from above, so they're – uh, of course, the, the Houthi rebels are fighting Al-Qaeda. They're, right. They're, that's and their, they're fighting ISIS. That's their biggest enemy there from the ground. Obviously, yeah. from the sky, it's it's Saudi Arabia, um, not coincidentally. Because the rebels, surprise, surprise, don't have planes. No, they do not. So, again, you have this – you have a consistent habit of decontextualizing the war, not explaining the war, not explaining who's doing what to whom – And the U.S. is mining its own business in the Persian Gulf, Um, just kind of chilling there without any, you know, sort of uh, malintent.
16: Picture Your Painting uh, deviates a lot from the conventional narrative we have about the war in Yemen, uh, which frames us around this just being an internal civil war in which Saudi Arabia is basically intervening on one side. Now, your book, Destroying Yemen, uh, offers a, a much different analysis than that and puts Yemen in both a, a regional context when it comes to the the, the regional designs of the Gulf monarchies like Saudi Arabia, but also of the U.S. Um, and international finance, uh, the U.S. obviously providing critical support to the satellite coalition. So can you then provide us with a, a brief summary of how you see this conflict uh, as being far different from that conventional narrative that I described of this being a civil war?
17: Uh, Well, since uh, the turn of the 20th century, uh, North Yemen in particular has more or less been this only sovereign, independent uh, Muslim polity left in the world that has survived and resisted uh, European imperialism. And uh, as a result, the ongoing efforts to incrementally uh, acquiring more and more access to um, what is recognized as a gold mine in terms of mines and uh, minerals and water rights and strategic location at the mouth of the Red Sea, uh, tons of oil and gas that could be exploited uh, with the right uh, conditions. Uh, North Yemen has long been a target for uh, um, empire. And the resilience uh, and the resistance, the kind of level of surprising level of sophistication for many of the uh, more um, Uh, racist elements of empire throughout the last century has resulted in an enduring campaign using proxies often like Saudi Arabia, which through their Takfiri, Wahhabi brand of uh, uh, viscerally ugly, uh, Islam has been able to subordinate neighboring countries, rival populations who have resisted empire at various points in time. And still Yemen has not been able to be subdued. So this constant effort to access its natural resources to uh, render the last kind of real space of resistance, with perhaps the exception now of Iran since 1979, Libya perhaps, and other small examples, um, puts Yemen in the, at the heart and at the cross, uh, hairs of of imperial expansion, and this has only gotten worse as empire has dramatically changed since uh, the global financial crisis of the last 20 years. The constant um, search for equity, for savings, to divert the savings of the Gulf uh, uh, Security Council's um, uh, savings from equity markets in the region or investment in property in the region to markets in the Atlantic world has led to the constant uh, hatch- ratcheting up of violent exchange in that region. And Yemen has long been a kind of point of uh, primary strategic concern. And
16: okay, Saudi so Arabia in see.
17: particular, yeah. yes. So
16: Professor, um, we're gonna get more into the US role in part two, but for now, i to ask you two questions. One, a, a key uh, moment in your book is when is in the 80s when then Vice President George Bush goes to North Yemen, which you mentioned, uh, to broker an oil deal. So i wonder if you could talk about that and its importance in this history, but then also then how then this current uh, assault on Yemen plays into this historical dynamic you're talking about when it comes to uh, Yemen's role uh, in global financial designs.
17: Mm. Uh, always able to, again, work off in the Cold War context, rival uh, superpowers, Able to work off rival regional powers, North Yemen Ali, under Ali Abdullah Salah, who had finally consolidated some kind of authority over the military and the various factions that had always made North Yemen's politics colourful, to say the least. Uh, George Bush, at the height of the depressed oil prices, global oil prices, when it was between $10 and $15, actually goes down and represent- representing Hunt Oil signs and agreements for exploration and for financing the infrastructure uh, to develop. First, North Yemen, which was a a separate independent republic at the time, and ideally, and within a couple of years indeed, both Yemen's unify in 1990, bringing in the much larger uh, pool of uh, oil and gas under what used to be this isolated Marxist state of South Yemen. And so this was a, a very interesting and telling move at the moment when oil prices were at its lowest, where there was absolutely no finance available for Yemen, either the South or the North, to independently develop their assets, their resources. The Americans come along with the head of the former head of the CIA and interesting enough with the LA Times story that it was revealed ultimately in several years later it was Saddam Hussein whose money getting uh, grants from the United States rechanneling it to uh, Yemen actually started the, the process of building Yemen's oil and gas infrastructure from that point forward moving forward and so what we're seeing is just a continuation of this initial successful entry into North Yemen politics for the first time for the Americans And it became increasingly um, demanding exclusive access to what was the treasure trove of what was yet exploited oil and gas resources, not only in Yemen itself, but also offshore, which includes the Horn of Africa. And the politics, the political economy of exploiting that entire region's natural resources is coming to the fore once again. Indeed, the new prime minister of Ethiopia in his recent tour uh, in his uh, recent reconciliation with Eritrea, the struggle over ports in Berbera in Somaliland, over Djibouti, over the islands of the Red Sea, and the war in Yemen is all intertwined in a very interesting story, which is really beginning to f- flesh out in the last couple of months. And this is why Hudaydah and the whole coast of Yemen is so important. Because if indeed they can isolate that area, they actually don't have to bother with the people living in the mountains, the 18 million people. They can just continuously isolate them and then continue on as planned to develop this whole area along the western coast of Southwest uh, Arabia, which would then allow for all kinds of subsequent infrastructure projects, which had been in the works before this war started in 2015.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Amy Arrett founded the company in 2013, naming it after her daughter, with a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. As is so often the case, the status quo options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. You'll look like you just came from the salon, but without the huge time commitment. Experience beautiful multi dimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door on your schedule for under $25. Hundreds of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com, and use the promo code LEFT.
6: Let's get a bit of a roundup in the uh, news Um, from uh, Al Jazeera. Here's Donald Trump giving the Saudis a pass. And uh, from CBS, uh, Bernie Sanders calling for an end to the Yemen war.
18: The U.S. president received his intelligence report into the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, and he's rejected the idea. It firmly says the Saudi crown prince ordered the operation.
11: Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't.
18: Donald Trump says he's standing by Saudi Arabia, a country he believes will help in his action against Iran and can help sell a Middle East peace deal to the Palestinians. He's also talked about the arms sales agreed with Saudi Arabia as important to the U.S. economy, even though numerous sources dispute the value in terms of dollars and jobs. But the man who will lead the House of Representatives Intelligence Committee in January, Democrat Adam Schiff, says he's seen intelligence reports too. And the answer is more definitive.
7: president is not being honest with the country about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, I think in part he feels that uh, by saying uh, that we don't know or that the world is a dangerous place or everybody does it, he thinks it makes him look strong. It actually makes him look weak.
18: But it's not just Democrats who are piling pressure on the White House. Trump ally Republican Senator Mike Lee says there are bound to be congressional hearings into U.S. links with Saudi Arabia.
14: Look, I don't know why he's siding with the Saudis, uh, but I think there are things we can do to change our relationship with the Saudis, notwithstanding whatever his personal motivations might be.
18: Donald Trump may well come face to face with the Saudi Crown Prince when he heads to the G20 meeting of leading industrialised countries in Argentina later this week. Despite widespread international condemnation of the killing of the Washington Post writer, one leading Saudi royal says other leaders know they have to do business with Mohammed bin Salman. Whether
11: leaders uh, in that summit will, will uh, warmly uh, engage with, with the Crown Prince or not, I think all of them recognise that uh, the Kingdom as a country and the King Salman and the Crown Prince um, are people that they have to deal with.
18: Congressional leaders seem united on the conclusion reached by U.S. intelligence services that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was responsible for the operation that killed Jamal Khashoggi. Senators will receive another classified briefing on Tuesday. That may well increase pressure on Donald Trump, not just to use stronger words, but to back that up with action. Alan Fisher, Al Jazeera, Washington.
1: Well, one of the foreign policy issues you do talk about in your book is uh, your call for uh, pulling back any kind of U.S. support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen. Uh, There is a resolution you have backed, along with Republican Mike Lee. Do you see, given the scrutiny in the wake of the killing of of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, new support for this bill?
13: I do. Uh, When we brought this up, I think it was in March... Uh, we ended up with 44 uh, votes, only five Republicans. Uh, I think we now have a chance to get a majority of the United States Senate. Uh, I think people are looking at the horrific humanitarian disaster now taking place in Yemen. There was a recent report that over the last number of years, some 75,000 children have died of starvation. This is a country dealing with cholera. cholera. A country dealing with a terrible level of famine. So you got that issue. You got the issue that this war was never authorized by the United States Congress in violation of our Constitution. And you got the Khashoggi, uh, incident, which says that we have a Saudi government led by a despotic ruler who killed a political opponent in cold blood. Add that all together. uh, I think the American people in Congress are now saying, let us end the support our support uh, for the uh, Saudi-led war uh, in Yemen.
6: All righty, there you go. I'd like to welcome our guest, um, Hakim Jihan, chair of the Yemeni Alliance Committee, which is working with other groups, including Just Foreign Policy and Action Corps. The groups noted that Trump last week defended U.S. government support for the Saudi-led war. Hakim, welcome. Thank you so much. Okay, so Hakeem, a lot uh, going on on the Hill today, and it seems as though you and your colleagues uh, managed to get support from from Nancy Pelosi um, on this. Uh, Tell us, you know, where things are right now. And are you expecting that this bill has a chance of going through the Senate?
19: Yeah, that's right. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we rallied uh, under Nancy Pelosi's San Francisco office, uh, you know, demanding her to uh, stand behind or sponsor HCON Res 138, which is a similar uh, War Powers Resolution in the House. Uh, unfortunately, um, as you know, uh, that resolution was blocked in the House. Um, so we uh anticipate that SJ Res 54, the War Powers resolution in the Senate that may be voted on today. Uh, There's been a lot of uh, traction. Uh we've been organizing and rallying across the country, um, asking folks to call their lawmakers, uh, to uh urge them to stand behind this resolution. And um we've received a lot of um you know positive um um, reinforcement that uh senators are you know those that have voted against uh the resolution back in March have uh swayed and are supporting SJ Res fifty four. So we are hoping that today uh the Senate does stand on the right side of history and does support uh the end to supporting and backing the settlement war
6: in Yemen. Right. And that's something our listeners could, uh, could do again. That is SJ Res 54 in the Senate and a lot of action happening on that today. Now, um, just to uh, give our listeners a sense of what's at stake here, uh, Jihan Hakim, tell us what you know about the situation on the ground, the humanitarian, uh, crisis going on in Yemen.
5: You know, it's really
19: hard to track, and um, the p- political climate changes every day, but millions of children are at immediate risk of starvation. Uh, Save the Children has said that more than 85,000 children have died due to starvation and complications of hunger. So we're we actually saying that um, they are being starved because food is being used as a tool due to the blockade that is happening on both uh, sides of the warring parties. And there have been uh, videos and pictures of children eating leaves. About 75% of Yemen's population, which is 22 million people, are at uh, need humanitarian assistance right away. And nearly half of those that are in need are children. And if we recall a couple of years ago, the UN estimated uh, that the casualties were about 10,000. And um, I think they have stopped counting. The death toll has uh, risen up to 50,000 others said that they've stopped counting after 50,000 um, and uh, another report by the UN said that after this call you know after every every 10 minutes a child dies due to preventable diseases that means after this call a child may have died in Yemen
0: the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, stop U.S. support of Saudi Arabia and Yemen by telling Congress to support the War Powers Resolution measures. Since March of 2015, the U.S. has been providing weapons, intelligence, and mid-air refueling support to Saudi Arabia and the UAE in their intervention in the Yemen Civil War. Over 17,600 civilians have died in airstrikes, and more than 85,000 Yemeni children have died of starvation. More than 8 million Yemenis are at risk of famine, and a cholera outbreak has affected 1 million people. Yemen is a full-on humanitarian crisis, and the U.S. is not only complicit, but has the power to end it. In early November, the Trump administration announced they would stop providing mid-air refueling for Saudi aircraft, but nothing less than complete withdrawal of support is enough. Congress has the power to force the Trump administration's hand by passing legislation that invokes the War Powers Resolution, a federal law from the post-Vietnam era intended to check the president's power to commit the United States to an armed conflict without the authorization of Congress. After a failed attempt in March, last week Senator Bernie Sanders put forth the legislation again, and the Senate finally voted to advance the War Powers Resolution legislation by a 63-37 majority. To be clear, they didn't vote on it. They just voted to say they should vote on it. God bless the Senate grassroots pressure on Democrats and Republicans, more details on the Saudi-ordered murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, and the fact that tens of thousands of Yemeni children are starving to death making headlines has all had an impact. A full Senate vote is now on the table, and this is the first time the U.S. Senate has invoked the War Powers Resolution. Of course, Trump, who doesn't understand most of the nation's laws, doesn't understand this one either. He claims that he'll just veto the resolution, but the War Powers Resolution needs only a simple majority in the House and Senate to be veto-proof. A vote in the House on a similar bill, sponsored by Representative Ro Khanna of California and dozens of his colleagues, was blocked a few weeks ago by Republican leadership. But now that the Senate has advanced the measure, Khanna says they will try again. However, even if they don't succeed, come January, the path forward in the House should be clear. So get on the phone and call your members of Congress in the House and Senate today to ensure they know that you do not want your tax dollars funding one of the worst humanitarian crises facing the globe today. Not all Democrats are a shoe in to vote for this measure, so keep the pressure on. You can also spread the word on social media with the hashtag YemenCan'tWait. If you'd like to help the Yemeni people directly, we've included links to a number of resources with ways to help in the show notes. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if ending this horrific humanitarian crisis the U.S. has helped to perpetuate is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about telling Congress to support the War Powers Resolution measures via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too.
1: From Europe, the Middle East and the U.S. met in Geneva today to iron out a resolution that would establish an international inquiry into atrocities in Yemen. Saudi Arabia and its allies are aligned with one faction of Yemen's civil war. They stand accused of causing massive civilian casualties in a punishing bombing campaign with American support.
12: I think people don't understand why Yemenis are fleeing Yemen. It's because of the civil war that has continued since 2015, where the Houthis and the legitimate government have been at odds with each other. Upon the standing president was being threatened by the Houthis. He fled the capital, went to Saudi Arabia and asked Saudi Arabia to intervene on behalf of of his leadership and the military. And sadly, what we have seen over the course of the last five years of this conflict is that it's turned into a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia. So the role that Saudi Arabia is playing is not good in terms of the devastation that's been actually created in Yemen and also the Houthi rebels and the devastation that they have created with the support of Iran.
3: 10,000
14: people have died, more than 40,000 have been injured, and over 3 million are malnourished. On top of it all, an outbreak of cholera has killed 2,000 people since late April, 700,000 people currently are infected. The
12: United States backs Saudi Arabia by providing intelligence and military support. The only way that this conflict could end is if this support is discontinued, and the Houthis and the standing government Go back to the national dialogues and try to resolve this conflict and bring peace to Yemen.
4: I came from Yemen in 2006, I decided in in New York City, in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. I I became a U.S. citizen and and since 2016 I've been trying to bring my wife here on an immigration visa which I applied around February of 2016. The process which is described to take only 6 months stretched out to more than than a year and a half and on November 14th we were granted an interview at the U.S. Embassy in Djibouti. My wife traveled to Djibouti to uh, have her interview at the U.S. Embassy and after the interview she was granted an approval letter that said that her visa was approved and everything was good and all she had to do was just wait for the visa to be printed. On March 13th, my wife got a phone call from the U.S. Embassy asking her to come to the the embassy, but there was no explanation of where she was uh, going there for. As soon as she arrived there, the consulate gave her her passport back and he gave her a letter that said that she has been denied under the proclamation of President Trump. My wife and her family has been greatly impacted by the war that's happened in Yemen. My wife is a resident of Al-Hudaydah, which is a war zone at at the current time. Pro-government
18: fighters advance along the edge
4: of the
0: Red Sea towards Hudaydah. The city, Yemen's main point of entry for imports, is controlled by Houthi rebels. But a coalition led by Saudi Arabia is trying to capture it.
4: Her family had fled the city to uh, go to a different city and basically live. The city of Al-Hudaydah is a city that lacks the basic life needs. We had left to go live in Sana'a basically because there is no life standards in in al Hudaydah. I'm left with the two options. It's either my wife will stay in Djibouti for God knows how long until her waiver gets approved and we don't even know how long is that going to be or send her back to Yemen where she does not have a house to go back to right now. We try to keep in touch every single day, but you know the connection that we feel that we should have and, and deserve to have as a, as a husband and a wife, you know, to live together, to enjoy life, to travel, to be able to explore, it's it's just not there. Because, you know, we are separated with thousands of miles and it's, it has taken a great psychological
20: toll on us to really cope with what's happening there. You got Irish Americans just like the black Americans, the Native Americans, Yemeni Americans. Let's talk about the Yemenis and why so many fleeing since 2015. A lot of deaths and bodies bleeding. Got the Houthis beefing with the government. is popping off Iranians and Saudis caught up in a proxy war causing devastation. Humanitarian crisis right now. A peaceful dialogue with Houthis would be righteous. Meanwhile, a U.S. citizen got his wife back in Yemen with his children working on a visa so they could be with him. <laughs> They got accepted they denied out the blue. After years of applications and nothing for them to do, she's in a war zone. They got to move to Djibouti or Sanaa, a letdown. Psychologically, it's getting harder for both of them to keep the family tight and living proper. Modest in this modern day victims of broken promise.
14: Using vulgar language, President Trump today questioned why the United
16: States would allow
14: people from Haiti and Africa into the country. We will very importantly
11: uh, be funding and closing the Loopholes that undermine our enforcement and we will get rid of chain migration and the visa lottery program We have a lottery program where we take in a lottery people from other countries in some places We are bringing in some very bad bad people people come in and they're not Necessarily good like the man that ran over the animal that ran over many people in New York City the other day According to Chain Migration, he may have as many as 22 to 24 people that came in with him. His grandfather, his grandmother, his mother, his father, his brothers, his sisters.
1: We are seeing the impact of the Trump administration's zero tolerance policy for illegal immigration at the border. It means adults coming into the U.S. without authorization are being criminally prosecuted, and children coming with them can be taken away, at least temporarily.
12: Sadly, this administration has turned a blind eye to what is happening there. And quite frankly, doesn't really care about people, about refugees, about anyone who's seeking a better life. And this is the harsh reality uh, that we are seeing across the board. We see what's happening at the southern border, how people are actually being taken and um, imprisoned and their children being ripped away from them. What's happening to Yemenis and people who are banned by the Muslim ban is exactly the same thing, except that it's invisible for us in the United States because it's happening at U.S. embassies, it's happening at airports, and we are not seeing it. These are all a part of one agenda to basically minimize the number of ethnic and racial groups to this country. And it's really sad and unfortunate that the ones paying the price are women and
21: children and elderly. The Center for Constitutional Rights and and Yale Clinic went to Djibouti and visited families to document and and see exactly what's happening. And and we found out that the actual Muslim ban moved abroad, away from the public uh, accountability, from the eyes of the public, to the embassies uh, abroad. What we uh, found is that based on a Muslim ban a 3.0, there are supposed to be a case-by-case uh, waivers where the administration was supposed to give people some sort of guidance on how to apply for those waivers, but we know the waivers are just window-dressing the Muslim ban. Uh, there they were kits uh, of U.S. citizens been denied visas even after they were approved for visas. We found family members who only have one child in in Djibouti and one child in the U.S. We found a a U.S. citizen left their jobs in the United States to stay with their families abroad. Many and dozens of immediate relatives of U.S. citizens approved and then denied because of the Muslim ban after 17 and 18 years waited to join their parents in the U.S.
12: This executive order is A Muslim ban. It was designed to be a Muslim ban because it was a campaign promise that Trump made to the world, that he was going to create a
11: Muslim ban. Total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. We look back at all the video footage. We see it. We hear it. I think Islam hates us. There's something There's something there that there's a tremendous hatred.
12: Sadly, there were people who cheered him on and who felt that that was the best thing that he can do for this country. You have no choice. Fast forwarding to after the election and the signing of the executive order, as much as they tried to say it wasn't by adding additional countries as window dressing. We know and see it to be a Muslim ban, and if people think otherwise, it's really sad and unfortunate. But this is the harsh reality of what this administration has decided to do, and that is to go after vulnerable communities, such as Muslims who are fleeing for their lives from war-torn areas for a better life. We learned of a Yemeni-American in Crowley, Louisiana, who took his life because of the heavy burden of the band, you know, working very hard, trying to actually uh, support his family in Djibouti, who've been there like for a couple of years waiting for their processing to be able to come to the United States. And this poor man who works at a store in Crowley, Louisiana, just could not take it anymore and uh, sadly took his life. So right now we are in communication with his brother. And what we learned was that after the incident happened, the U.S. government decided to give visas to his family. So now his family is gonna be arriving to the United States to reunite with him, except that they are going to bury him versus this having a happy ending.
20: Yeah. Does the administration care? It's all political points. Families torn and they suffering. Let's get to the point at the border where babies ripped away and put in cages. In the meantime, ruthless dictators is getting favors. The Muslim ban, they're banning people for religion. Families and children kept separated by the system. That's the bigger picture. Certain ethnic groups are minimized. Women, children, and the elderly are the most victimized. They want to create a divide and turn us into tribes. After the ban, a man committed suicide. Down in Louis Louisiana couldn't get his family here. How many tears manipulating us with fear? Where did our values go? When did we become so scared? Social media connected, yet so unaware. America was never great through hate. When we discriminate, everything we stand for breaks, for real.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with Counterspin, highlighting the one story MSNBC ran on Yemen in recent memory. The Inquiry explored many of the players in the conflict and their motivations. The Daily explained the connection between the war in Yemen and the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Citations Needed discussed more examples of U.S. corporate media staying within their narrowly defined Overton window of war coverage. The Real News discussed the role of the imperialistic mindset in the Yemen war. Sojourner Truth Radio played a roundup of recent news and discussed the campaign in Congress to put an end to U.S. support for Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen. Our activism for today is in support of that congressional effort. And finally, we just heard Newsbeat making the connection between the unconscionable U.S. policy of supporting the war in Yemen and the unconscionable Trump policy of preventing victims of that war from escaping to the U.S. And now, as a part of the wrap-up, a brief climate check, because climate change affects everything. You should know that climate change has exacerbated the war-induced famine in Yemen, drying out the wettest and most fertile place in not only the country, but the whole of the Arabian Peninsula, where villages used to be able to grow enough food to be able to store three or four months' worth. Now, less rainfall means smaller harvests, resulting in little or no stored food to depend on in emergencies like war. And now a reminder that members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips filling in even more details of the war in Yemen, and one strange fact about how Republicans attempted to stop the War Powers Resolution from moving forward. So to hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and. sharing. And now we'll hear from you.
14: So, uh, Alan from Connecticut calling in. Thank you, Nick. And thank you, Jay, uh, from white, one white privileged dude to two others. Um, Nick, your question and then your subsequent answering of the question for a B plus answer and, Jay, you're allowing that whole thing to play out. I thought it was uh, lovely and a nice uh, overall um, seeing something and watching it progress. I thought it was pretty awesome. Um, and the only thing I can add to Jay's um, comment on that, which I think was almost flawless, was that... Um, it's not just the wrong question that um, the wrong answer to the to the wrong question piece, but the damage that it does when Warren says, you know, this DNA piece that she's going to do to the people who are not going to spend the time to look into this. Oh well, it's just a DNA. You've now um, perpetuated a falsity um, to millions of people that you can't undo. So it just becomes, you know, to some people, well, that's all you got to do. Um, And and she was taking a shortcut. If she really wanted to answer Trump, she could have found out what it would take to get her story verified, whether that's a family tree or whether that's whatever it is, and find that out and then follow through with that to then challenge Trump. But I don't think all that is even worth it. But taking the shortcut only uh, kind of made things worse. So that's that would be my take. Thanks, everybody. Stay awesome.
9: Hi, Jay. It's your old pal, Elizabeth, who agrees with you on stuff without realizing it. So my husband is Native American, and I have a bit of a secondhand insight to contribute to the Elizabeth Warren Native American conversation. My husband actually gets really upset whenever this topic gets brought up because my husband looks very white and he often is told that he's not native enough. And it's particularly hurtful because my husband, I guess for anyone out there who's native, he's a pipe carrying Sundancer. So that means he live native and that there are certain spiritual practices in our household that we have to observe, and such, myself not being Native, but I digress. So what I'm saying is, he's not just Native in the blood sense, but in the life sense. He has deep ties to a particular tribe. But part of the contention is that at any moment, all he has to do is cut his long hair and not wear... Any, um, any of his native jewelry with spiritual significance and he can walk around this world as a white man. And that is part of what I think causes the contention when people who don't have that choice who are treated as native, whether they want to be or not, will kind of look at him and say, well, yeah, dude, you're like, uh, you know, you're native sometimes, but you don't have to be. And his... Uh, standpoint that I hear often is that part of the goal of genocide is to dilute the blood. So, you know, white man came over and massacred a bunch of Indians and those that remain, if they can, you know, quote unquote, supposedly breathe them out, then eventually there are no Indians. So my husband's standpoint often is why would you guys deny somebody Indianhood who has any kind of connection because you don't have enough family to, to lose. You know, that um, don't squander what you've got because the more you let go of it, the more it's gone. So on the one hand, he kind of is frustrated with everyone calling Elizabeth Warren non-native. Now, absolutely, of course the The fact that she lives a life of privilege and does not necessarily have ties to um to any tribe particular um, that i I guess it's just kind of a double edged sword it's that you're if you're denying what little family you have left then eventually you'll have no family um that that's his his stance from the native community anyway um but of course, certainly. It's irritating when random white dude, you know, wants to throw a new age seminar and says, look, I've got this authentic native thing. Obviously, the cultural appropriation is a problem Um, when it comes to biological identity. I think that where we can draw the line personally, I am officially a quarter, probably half Spanish. That being said. People approach me speaking Spanish all the time, and I have to say, sorry, dude, I, I really don't speak Spanish. And that experience has been drastically different. I grew up on the West Coast where everyone's Hispanic in some kind, so the fact that I wasn't 100% meant I wasn't Hispanic. And in school, I'd probably get my butt kicked for claiming Hispanicness. In adulthood, I moved to the South, and now I, I for the first time, am experiencing racism, actually. And I actually was really confused and said what do you what do you mean? I'm white? At least I thought I was white. So I've had a lot of conversations about this with um some of my non-white friends as well. and I think we've come to somewhat of a conclusion, at least a soft conclusion and and I'm not a hundred percent I'm not a hundred percent on board with it. The idea that your cultural and your racial identity really is wrapped up in American racism that I don't feel comfortable claiming Hispanicness amongst other Hispanic people because I was not raised with the struggles and the experiences of what it is to be Hispanic in America. I only experienced that very recently. So I had the white privilege of being told from a very young age that I am entitled to anything and everything I want. So on the one hand, feel kind of on the outside looking into the Hispanic community on that level. On the other level, I'm not allowed to be white anymore because I'm in the South and I'm told over and over again by white people that I'm Hispanic, but I don't want to appropriate Hispanicness. So I kind of have this in between thing. So similarly, I think that when the people of, of mixed heritage have these family stories of nativeness, I think that there is a similar conundrum of what does it really mean to be native and what's that native experience? And I think that you really can't nail down 100% what is the native experience and what does it mean to be raised native? But I think that you can somewhat say like, have you experienced nativeness or have you not? Um, it's not a tourism thing it's not okay to just jump in and say yeah man I feel the struggle on the weekends so that's kind of my outsider perspective and my secondhand perspective I have no answers on this but thought I'd chime in here thanks again love the show
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped get our clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, just a quick response to Elizabeth regarding genocide, because we like to have fun on this show. Uh, So so she she wrote genocide... and and the related topic of diluting the blood. And she sort of referred to it as, uh, you know, one aspect of genocide is the desire to dilute the blood of the group that is, uh, you know, being targeted. And that stuck out to me because I am unfortunate enough to have been exposed to the white genocide conspiracy theory, which is uh, focused almost exclusively on the concept of diluting the blood And so I just wanted to uh, brush up on genocide myself and then share it with you to inoculate everyone against the insanity that is the white genocide conspiracy theory. So first of all, Uh, Let's just all have a nice refresher on what genocide is. So, the international legal definition of the crime of genocide is found in Articles 2 and 3 of the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide. Article 2 describes two elements of the crime of genocide. Number one, the mental element, meaning the, quote, intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such, unquote, and, number two, the physical element, which includes five acts described in sections A, B, C, D, and E, A, killing members of the group, B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and E, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. The crime must include both the mental and physical elements to be called genocide. Okay, so basically it's a description of exactly what uh, white settlers did to uh, Native people in America It's as plain as the nose on all of our faces. Now, the idea of white genocide takes that, twists it ridiculously, uh, sets half of it aside, and claims uh, that white people are the actual victims of uh, genocide in the modern era. So... Uh, this is from Wikipedia, the white genocide conspiracy theory is a neo-Nazi white nationalist and supremacist conspiracy theory that mass immigration, racial integration, miscegenation, low fertility rates, and abortion are being promoted in predominantly white countries to deliberately turn them minority white and hence cause white people to become extinct through forced assimilation, unquote. Uh, in other words, diluting the blood. and so they, they take all these issues you know immigration, racial integration, miscegenation, uh, fertility rates, which is not really a policy and an abortion, all of which can be policies that uh, uh, should be promoted or t- we should all be completely free to do uh, in a variety of ways for a multitude of reasons. and they take all of those, and say, no, it's actually a conspiracy. They're all being put in place to uh, dilute the blood of white people, hence white genocide. Uh, forget the whole requirement that there be a physical aspect, meaning killing, uh, causing serious bodily injury, uh, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, and so on. Let's just set all of that aside and and uh, choose to believe that Simply allowing immigration is uh, is done with the intent to uh, <laughs> to wipe out the white race. So in a day and age when it's good to nip any conspiracy theory in the bud whenever you have the chance, I, I thought I would take the opportunity, the mention of the diluting of the blood and the genocide to uh, remind us, what the white genocide conspiracy theory is and why it makes no sense whatsoever. And it's great because it's a classic conspiracy theory where they will grasp at any straws to try to construct the fulfillment of their own desired vision of the world. But it's also the classic projection problem where they believe that what they literally did to the Native people is what's being done to them. Not only can you take all of these uh, bullet points and apply them to Native people, but in terms of constructing a policy to specifically attempt to dilute the blood, as we learned in a recent episode, that is exactly what the, the policy of blood quantum imposed by the federal government was all about. So now you know not only what genocide is, but uh, sometimes more importantly, what it isn't. So with that, uh, keep keeps comments coming in at 202 999 That is gonna be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of the left, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all